0: A story. A story is one of the most uh, captivating, motivating, uh, uh, trans-cultural, trans-generational communication tools that I think we have at all in, in mankind, in our, in our existence. It's, there's nothing like a story, really. I and mean, a good story can, can draw in almost anyone and it does something to us. We, we, can, we can learn from a story. We can be taught. We can be uh, uh, inspired to do things. Uh, we can have our emotions, hearts touched and moved. And we can even be corrected and rebuked by a story. I mean, a classic example of that would be Prophet Nathan to King David when he uh, confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. How? By uh, telling him a story. And of course, one of the most compelling kinds of stories, I, I say... Uh, we see everywhere today, in our novels, our sports writing, our our, our films, is stories of unlikely success. The the stories of an underdog who rises to victory against impossible odds. Just just think any plot line to any Rocky film you've ever seen. We love these stories. Whether it's the story of of a poor waitress living on social assistance, who, who finally got her, her no-name book about a young wizard named Harry Potter published, all of a sudden going on to be one of the best-selling authors of all time. Or a young uh, athlete named Michael Jordan who couldn't even make his high school basketball team, going on to become arguably one of the best basketball players of all time. We, we love these stories, and thousands like them, because they give us hope. How do they give us hope? Well, because... In each of those stories that we read, we know they shouldn't have won. It shouldn't have worked, right? I mean, if you just look at the odds, you line up everything in sequential, logical order, and it should have guaranteed failure, guaranteed loss. And there's no way it should have worked out. And yet somehow, these people, they still won. And stories like that, they give us hope because when we hear about them winning, we think, okay, maybe, just maybe, I could win too. Maybe I could win against the impossible things that I'm facing. That's why those stories are so captivating to us. When we come to the book of Acts, we have just such a story in our hands this morning. You have this tiny pioneering movement in the first century called The Way. That, that's not even a good name for a movement. Made up of 11 like uneducated, blue-collar workers who, who's, whose leader had just got crucified. And then there's a couple of dozen other followers still hanging around. you got this team against the well-established superpower of the religious leaders, not to mention the Iron Fist of Rome, which is governing the known world at the time, you you, you don't need a calculator to kind of figure out those odds, right? They're not just really, really bad. They're impossible. And they shouldn't have won. And yet, history shows us that not only did they win, I mean, by the 4th century, Christianity becoming the, 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 the Roman Empire's dominant religion under Constantine to the point where it continued to win, actually, to the place where now you and I are sitting here today, 2,000 years later, a world away, still talking about this movement, still being transformed by it. And the resounding question for all of us when we come to any one of these stories is, okay, well, how'd they do it? How did they win? What's What's their secret? And how can I win today against the impossible odds that I'm facing? Well, the answer that the book of Acts gives us here and that most commentators agree is the, is the fulcrum, the, the launch pad, the, the thesis statement of the entire book of Acts is found in chapter 1, verse 8. Look with me there. What Luke tells us here is that just before the resurrected Jesus left this earth and returned to his father, he told his powerless ragamuffin group of followers this, you will receive Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Which means that for Jesus' followers then, as well as today, the way we we win against impossible odds is not because of our own strength, because of our own uh, wisdom, our ability to strategize or coalition, form. We win solely by the strength that He gives us. He gives us the strength to win the very Spirit of Christ Himself dwelling in us, by the Holy Spirit. That's how we win. That's the, book, that's the answer the book of Acts gives us anyway. And man, that's essential for us to know. And, and honestly, it's one of the whole reasons I wanted us to go through this series on the book of Acts. Because if you look at the front of your bulletin, if you look at that poster on the back wall, what, what you see is that we too have a, a mission. A mission which is impossible to carry out in our own strength. There's no way we're going to accomplish that. There's no reason we should win at that mission to see our city and world renewed. It's not going to work. No amount of strategizing or, or programming or whatever. is ever going to see that mission accomplished unless... unless we receive the power to do it, unless it's given to us, unless we are empowered by God's Spirit to do it unless we are clothed with power from on high. It's the only way we're going to ever accomplish it. Whatever else we do afterwards, we must always and ever begin upon that foundation and build from there. We succeed in our mission by the power the Spirit gives us. And as we study through this amazing, epic story found in in this first pioneer church that we read about in the book of Acts, I'm praying that we too will be uh, inspired, that we'll be taught, that our hearts and emotions will be stirred and moved, and that we too will be at places corrected and rebuked for every time and every way that we've, we've tried to live out, to, to win at our mission and our own power and strength. And probably like 10,000 times more than we do today. What we're going to see in our passage that we just read here is that Jesus' disciples, they desperately needed to know how it was they were going to accomplish the mission Jesus had given them too. They had no idea against these impossible odds how they would accomplish the mission Jesus left with them, particularly when now they're watching what they saw as their strength, their power source, floating up into the clouds. You see, If you've been in church for any length of time, you know that just before Jesus returned to His Father, He gave His followers a mission, a purpose, what uh, verse 2 calls here instructions. And it's what's most commonly referred to as the Great Commission. The Great Commission that we read about most clearly in Matthew's Gospel at the end there. Jesus, just before He ascends, He says this to His disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, from day one of his earthly ministry, anyway, Jesus had been talking about the kingdom of God. He'd been talking about the kingdom of God and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king, and as he comes into earth, God's kingdom is breaking in on the earth in power... Jesus' disciples, I mean, they had a front row seat to this as they followed Jesus around, saw him teach, saw him perform these amazing miracles and learn from his example. And so now, in a sense, it's as though Jesus' great commission is saying, okay, now now that I'm leaving, now it's up to you. I'm leaving you with my work now for you to accomplish, to carry on this work of kingdom expansion, and I want it to expand to the ends of the earth. As we just stated, here's the problem that they would have had with that. That whole time, well, Jesus was with them. He was there. He he was showing them what to do. He was instructing them and, and giving them the abilities to do these things. And even said at the end of that Great Commission, he said, Hey, surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to be with you right through to the end of this mission, which I'm sure would have been an incredibly comforting promise, But it's also the reason, I'm sure, that the disciples were scared and flipping out when Jesus started talking about leaving. Because it's like, well, how how is that going to work? You you said you'd be with us, and now you're going away? And I'm sure uh, it was difficult for them as well, because it was a bit of a staggered exit. They, They lost Jesus at the crucifixion, but then three days later, he's back again. But then... Forty days after that, well, now he's going again. He's he's floating up into the clouds, saying as he leaves them, by the way, don't forget what I told you. Keep expanding my kingdom through the end of the world. And I'm sure every one of the disciples, just like staring up there, open mouth, thinking inside their heart, how in the world are we ever going to do that? How? How are we ever going to win at this mission you've left with us? And it must have been terrifying for them in a lot of ways. Uh, you can you know it yourself if you've ever been trained to do something and then left alone to do it for yourself. All of a sudden, even though, yeah, you've been trained, but the person is gone now and you're expected to do it on your own. It's scary, right? Particularly if that job is something where you know any mistakes you make are going to have really drastic consequences. It's terrifying. And Jesus said, said He'd be with them, but now it's like the safety net is removed, training wheels are taken off, and, and that support, that, that, that mentor, that, that trainer, he, He's nowhere to be seen. And they're feeling hopeless and powerless to live it out. And for you and I today, although, yeah, no, none of us has ever had Jesus physically with us like the disciples did, when we come to understand that Jesus commission. For his disciples then is also our mission today as his followers. That we are the ones who are now to continue to expand his kingdom to the end of the earth. Well now we can feel just as powerless and afraid as they do. Jesus can feel as far away and removed as he was to the disciples staring up into the sky 2,000 years ago. Particularly when we look around at the impossible odds facing us. We look around at this world we live in today. We experience the, the hostility from friends and, and family members uh, to our faith. Or we just, living in a, a city of affluence like Vancouver, where people who aren't hostile to our faith are just indifferent to it. Why would I need that? The mission is impossible. We can never win at this mission Jesus has left us with. And he said he'd be with us, but now he's out of reach. I can't see him anywhere. And it looks like he's just left us to finish out this mission on our own. Have you ever felt like that? When you think of the mission Jesus has called you to, you ever felt like, I'm on my my own here? Well, again, the hope that we're going to see in our passage today is that Jesus hasn't left us on our own. In fact, His physically leaving, actually ascending to heaven, was solely for the purpose that we might truly be able to be with us always permanently by His Holy Spirit until His bodily return one day. And we're going to see how Jesus does that and we're going to look actually at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit quite a lot throughout this series on the book of Acts. But today in our passage, I want to show you just two ways that Jesus continues to be with us right now by His Spirit. We're going to see how Jesus is, first of all, with us in our weakness, and then we'll see how Jesus is with us in our witness. It's those two things, with us in our weakness, with us in our witness. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to book of Acts, chapter 1. Follow along with me here as we dive into this new series for the book of Acts in your church. So, as I said, let's begin by looking at how Jesus is with us in our weakness. He's with us in our weakness. And when we consider the, I mean, just obvious, observable power that this first pioneering Christian movement would have had as compared to all the uh, uh, amazing powers oppressing and against them around them, their, their weakness, the inability of the early church, it would have been obvious to everyone, not least of which including themselves. They knew they were powerless, right? But before Jesus leaves his disciples in order to ascend them, this empowering of the Holy Spirit, we read this in verse 3. Look with me there. After his suffering, this is his crucifixion, he, that is Jesus, showed himself to these men, the apostles, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, that might not seem immediately significant as to why that matters here, but it would have been essential for the disciples' faith that He did this. That before He left, He made sure that they had a solid foundation, a solid trust and hope that Jesus, everything He'd said and done while He was with them, was true. That that He really was who He said He was. We talk about this quite frequently here. I I mean, just as recently as Easter Sunday. But... The reality of Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection from the dead is a foundation upon which everything else that Jesus ever said and did rests. It rests solely upon that miracle that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. Apostle Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, if, if that's not true, then nothing else Jesus said matters. It matters so much so that the whole strength of everything even we have here today in the Bible, it all rests on the fact that Jesus really rise from the dead. And yet, think about it, in our late modern, post-enlightenment society, we, we, we look at these uh, beliefs, we look at the disciples, and we think, okay, well, sure, sure they believed people can rise from the dead. They, they believed that kind of stuff back then. Everybody thought that. You know what? Yeah, people rise from the dead. People float up into the sky. They they just believed that stuff because they were pre-scientific, superstitious. And I'm going to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Greek and, and Roman philosophy would say that something like the resurrection, you wouldn't even want that to happen because in their philosophy, well, physical matter, our bodies, these were evil. And our spirit was what was good. And so why would you want to return to a physical a weak body once you had been freed from it. And then the Jews, yeah, they had a belief in a resurrection at the end of time. God would raise the dead and restore the kingdom back to Israel, but there was no concept. They wouldn't have even hoped for a resurrection before that, or for one individual. They wouldn't have even had a concept to believe that such a thing could happen. So no, they, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't just accept it that way, which is why I think Luke tells us Jesus stuck around for 40 days after he rose again, giving, he says, their many convincing proofs that he was alive. Because you see, before Jesus ever sent the Holy Spirit to empower his disciples for their mission, he wanted to strengthen their weakened faith. Their faith had been devastated by watching him crucified. And he needed to make sure that they knew he truly was alive. Listen, you look at every single encounter Jesus had with His disciples after His resurrection. Again and again, what's He doing? He's trying to convince them, I- I'm really alive, guys. Feel me. Touch, put your hands in the holes. Uh, give me something to eat. Whatever it is, all the time saying, guys, I'm, I'm alive. I'm not a ghost. And He wanted them to be sure of that. Jesus truly is risen before He ever left them on their own. And it's only after that But then Jesus shows his disciples how he will also give them power. He shows them how he'll continue to be with them in their weakness, in their uh, political weakness, their socioeconomic weakness as well. We see that in verse 6. He starts to work through this. Jesus is meeting with his disciples again, and now that they're convinced, okay, he is risen, he is who he says he was, and and, and I believe that now, now they say this in verse 6. Imagine very excited as they say this. Lord, okay, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And okay, now what's that about? Why why are they going on about this? Well, clearly, in coming to see who Jesus truly is, that he truly is the promised Messiah, they feel like, all right, finally. So sick of this existence up until now. Now we got this powerful leader, we got this general who's gonna lead us in the charge, free from this Roman oppression. Getting over these religious leaders who are oppressing us at every point, we're going to rise up now. Because now, let's—we got the superstar quarterback on our team. We can win with this guy, man. And yet, we see this was a weakness that Jesus wasn't coming to overcome for them. He wasn't planning to overcome weakness the way they had planned and the way they thought. They were weak in every way, as we said—weak politically, weak. Uh, uh, economically, uh, even in their position in society. In every way they were weak, and they were desperate for someone to give them this power. It's pretty much like exactly what we see right now at the Coptic church, living in a Muslim-dominated Egypt. Every part of them is is under the power of someone else right now. So their understanding was, okay, now that the tables are being turned, decidedly, is power now going to be restored to Israel? Are you going to empower us to be this strong kingdom of our own again. But you see, Jesus tells them, basically, he says, that's not at all the kingdom that I've come to bring, nor is that the kingdom that I'm asking you to go around and expand either. Instead, you see Jesus telling his disciples there in verse 8, look here. He says, yes, you, you will receive power. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do something about your weakness. But then he immediately says, but it's not the kind of power you think. It's not the kind of military, political power you were expecting. You know, Jesus says, "You'll receive power to expand my kingdom, to live out this mission. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, the power you're going to receive is to be my witnesses." Huh? What? That? Which I, I mean, you read that at first, it sounds like Jesus. With everything that they're facing and that they are going to face, it seems like he's not helping them at all. That's the power you're going to give us to be your witnesses? It's like Jesus is standing the disciples on the front line of a huge battle and saying, don't worry, guys, I got you these I Heart Jesus t-shirts. <laughs> uh, thank you? Like That's not going to help me. Now, Now, we'll get into how Jesus is with us in our witness in a second. But first of all, when you look at the bare facts here of, of what the disciples were facing as they sought to carry out the mission Jesus has given them, he's sending them out, and it looks like he's not giving them power to accomplish the mission at all. He's not giving them power. He's not taking them into the back cave and giving them some kind of body armor, invisible jet or something to be able to do this. He's giving them nothing. All he tells them is, no, uh, you, don't, you don't get to know the times when God's going to do that stuff. And no, I'm actually not removing your weakness. At least not the way you were hoping. And then he tells them, just, I need you to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for some kind of other power which I'm going to send you. And I can imagine as we read that today, there's got to be at least two reactions to that in, in this room. A room like this there has got to be at least uh, one person going to read that. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior already, you read that and you think, of course. Of course he can't do anything. Jesus is just some kind of a hippy-dippy, esoteric, philosophy major just saying a bunch of highfalutin stuff, and then he takes off, but he can't actually back up what he's promised. He can't really give them power. Of course not. Or... Maybe the other response is, you do know Jesus as your Savior, but as you read these circumstances of the apostles, you're kind of like, Oh, that sounds a little bit too close to what I'm experiencing right now. It feels kind of like Jesus has taken off on me too, and he hasn't given me the power I need. He hasn't taken away my weakness. He hasn't rescued me the way I, I thought he was going to, and I'm staring up into the sky waiting for this power, and I'm not receiving it either. And if that's where you are, if either one of you, if that's where you are this morning, like Jesus, I'm going to ask you to wait. Wait, not not for 10 days like they had to wait. Wait like two or three minutes as we talk through this next point here. Because Jesus is still with you. He is, and he does give you the power to face those impossible things that you're facing today, but it's just not in the way that you're expecting it to be always. And so that's why I think we often miss it. Because He doesn't do it the way that we are expecting or hoping. So, quickly, let's jump into the second point here. I don't want to leave you waiting for too long. Let's look at how Jesus is with us in our witness. How is He with us in our witness? Look again at verse 6. I want you to follow the the train of thought here with me so hopefully we can understand all together how it is that Jesus remains with us and gives us power we need to carry out the mission. Look here at verse 6 and 7. They say to Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates. My father has set by his own authority. But then at the beginning of verse 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Okay, so great. That's good. That sounds good. Jesus is saying, don't worry. I'm not leaving you hanging. You are going to receive power from me to carry out this mission that I'm giving you to. And he says the way he's going to do it is when the Holy Spirit comes on them. Verse 5, he talks about it as you'll receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or back at the end of Luke's gospel, he talks about being clothed with power from on high. That's how he says you're going to receive this power. Now, of course, we just jumped into Acts. We started this. But if you know your Bible pretty well, you might remember that back in John 16, Jesus told his disciples ahead of time, Hey, I am going away. I don't want you to be surprised by this. I am going away, but that's actually a good thing. It's a good thing that I'm going away because I'm going away so that you can permanently have my presence with you for all time. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in John 16. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you'll remember I warned you. I did not tell you this first because I was with you. So he's saying, you're going to feel powerless. You will feel that way. Now listen, verse 5. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And that Counselor is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm going away so that now I can actually be with you. I can fulfill that promise of the Great Commission. I will be with you always by my Spirit and His presence living inside of you now. Okay? Great. So you're with us. You are giving us... Power, so we're going to get this power we so badly need when the Spirit comes. Okay, what's it going to look like? What kind of power? What's my superpower going to be? Am I going to get wings? I have uh, swords come out of my wrists or something like something cool, uh, see-through walls. What's what's my superpower going to be? And Jesus tells us here in the second half of verse 8. He says, you'll receive this power. You will be my witnesses. Sorry, you will be my witnesses. That's the power I'm going to give you. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're opening a birthday gift, right, and, and that's inside, you're going to be like, what? No, no, I mean, that, and that's it. He says, you'll be my witnesses, and then there's no, nothing on the other side of the page, nothing underneath the paper at the bottom of the gift bag. That's it. He just takes off. And I'm sure the disciples are sitting there just like us thinking, what? No, no, no. So Jesus, that that can't be it. That can't be all you're giving us. That can't be how you're giving us power. That doesn't make me powerful at all. And Jesus' loving and patient response is, I know. I know it's not making you powerful. I never intended to do that. The way I empower you to accomplish the mission I've given you is to empower you to be my witnesses. What does a witness do? They they testify to things that they've seen, heard, experienced. Okay, how does that make us powerful? doesn't. But what it does do is allow people to see, hear, and experience the amazing thing God does through us in our weakness so that people are drawn not to us and our power, but to him, the only source of power in life. Maybe you know uh, the Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 had a a conversation, an argument with Jesus just like this. (laughs) Uh, He actually had three of them, where uh, he was pleading with God to take away his thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what that thorn is. I think there's Good evidence to suggest that maybe it was poor eyesight, that maybe his eyes never fully healed after he was blinded on the road to Damascus where he was converted to faith. And I think one of the reasons Paul pleaded so earnestly with Jesus to take away this thorn, this this poor eyesight, is because someone who is used to being in power, someone who is used to being on top as one of the religious leaders, remember he was oppressing the church, trying to shut it down, that now he felt his poor eyesight, this made him look incredibly weak, incredibly powerless to those that he was preaching to. I can imagine some of the conversations Paul would have with Jesus, just being like, do do you know how anticlimactic it is when I'm at the crescendo of my sermon, and I'm speaking to the Gentiles, they seem like they're interested, I'm talking arguing with religious leaders, and all of a sudden i got to pull up my reading glasses so that I can see the passage I'm talking to? It makes me look totally weak, totally just like dismissible, takes away all the power in my preaching. And once again, Jesus lovingly and graciously says, I know it does. I know it takes away the power in your preaching, and that's why I'm not taking away the thorn. What's Jesus' response to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect. My power shines most brightly in weakness. Back in February at uh, the Multiply Conference downtown at Westside Church, a pastor and friend of mine there, Norm Funk, uh, gave an illustration talking about this passage. which just blew my mind, and I'm fully going to rip it off and use it here. He talked about uh, going into a jewelry shop. It was coming up to their 25th wedding anniversary, and he wanted to get some diamonds for his wife. So he wanted to just see what's there. How much is this going to cost me? And he went into the shop, and uh, they have, you know, different places where they kind of educate you about diamonds. They show you, and so they have big magnifying glasses that you can look at it really close, and bright lamps and everything. And he said, yeah, the diamonds look amazing. It's, it's, it's great. But he said it wasn't until they laid out a plain black piece of velvet and put the diamonds on that, that all of a sudden, well, they just popped. It was just like, wow, I can't can't even believe what I'm looking at. Against that background, they looked stunning. And the point is, as it applies to what we're looking at here today, is that in not taking away our weakness, but enabling us to be faithful witnesses in spite of our weakness, what we end up doing is making Jesus pop. He shines brightly to a world that desperately needs to see Him in our weakness. Man, I'll tell you what, if you think being a faithful witness to Jesus in this life, you think making Jesus pop is easy, something that you don't need the empowering of the Holy Spirit to accomplish, then you've never really tried to do it. Because that's not easy. No, the, the power Jesus gives us through His Spirit living in us to endure the everyday as well as the unimaginable circumstances we face and still remain obedient to Him is essential. To still remain a faithful witness whether it's continuing to extend grace and love to someone who doesn't just disagree with your opinion but hates you for having it, to continuing to love and care for and provide for a rebellious child who has thrown away everything that you taught them growing up and is throwing all your rules back in your face. You need the Spirit's empowering to be a faithful witness there. From uh, someone refusing to, Uh, to defend themselves when when they're being wrongly slandered or, or, or persecuted by somebody. Two, all the way up to submitting to firing squads and beheadings for your faith in Christ. And a thousand, thousand ways in between those things, in order to be a faithful witness, we need the Spirit's empowering to endure any of those things. You think you don't need incredible power to do that? Do you think you have any hope of being a faithful witness in those situations without His power at work within you? You Don't. None of us do. Jesus is with us. He has given us power to carry out the mission to which He's called us. And yes, all through the book of Acts, if you know already, yeah, the apostles do amazing things, miraculous things by the power of Jesus' work through them, but... The only difference in that equation is that the power at work within them and at work within us today, it's never ours. It's not our power at work that does those things. It is ever and always absolutely His and His alone. He doesn't come to make us powerful. He comes to work through our weakness to show that He's powerful. The uh, title of this book, we don't. if you have a pew Bible, you will just say Acts. Some of your Bibles will say that the title, the longer title of this book is The Acts of the Apostles. Have you heard this? Sometimes this book is referred to as The Acts of the Apostles because it's describing the early church, right? The acts that the apostles did and this pioneering beginnings of the early church. Very quickly, look back at verse 1 and 2 with me. This is foundational for how we understand acts. Luke says here, In my former book, that's the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. See, what that's telling us is that really what Luke is describing here in the book of Acts is firstly, it's not actually the Acts of the apostles, it's the continued work of Jesus through his apostles by the power of his Spirit on earth from heaven it's what led uh, theologian john stott talking about the title of this book to say this the most accurate though cumbersome title for the book of acts then which does justice to luke's own statement in verse one and two would be something like this the continuing words and deeds of jesus by his spirit through his apostles (laughs) now i think we're gonna we'll stick with acts for this but i think it's incredibly helpful and and important to remember that longer title when we go through this book. That whatever Acts we see the apostles doing here as we study through this book, Luke has shown us what Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts shows us what Jesus continues to do and teach through his weak apostles by the power of his Spirit. And I want us to see that because it's the exact same thing for us today. Our aim as a church, our aim as individual followers of Jesus should never be first and foremost to figure out, okay, what can we do? What can we do to accomplish the mission Jesus has called us to, as important as that is? No. First and foremost, what we should always be seeking to do is to discern what does Jesus want to do through us? What does he want to do through us? my weakness in order to make his superior and power and glory pop? How does he want to use us in all of our weakness, all of our inability in order to show his power and strength to a world that is desperate to know him and the rescue that he came to accomplish? He is still with us by his spirit dwelling in us and we have been given power to accomplish the mission he's called us to, to spread the transforming power of the gospel to our city, And to our world, we must always remember the power he's given us doesn't transform us into powerful people. It was never intended to. We receive power from on high to be his witnesses. We'll never do that without his help. So let's pray and ask him now to empower us to be that witness today and each day from today.